Larry Norman was the poet laureate of the Jesus movement in the early 1970s. So at a time when our nation was in the midst of the Vietnam War and the counterculture movement was at its peak, protest songs were all the rage. Credence, Clearwater Revival, saying, It ain't me, I ain't no fortunate son. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, they sang the haunting Tin Soldiers and Nixon's Coming. We're finally on our own. This summer I hear the drumming. Four dead in Ohio. Of course, probably peak protest came from the peak protester, Bob Dylan. Yes, and how many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. But in the midst of these protest songs, in the midst of really the height of the Cold War, in the midst of the the sexual revolution, and at a time when this this counterculture was actually openly encouraging drug experimentation, men like Timothy Leary were, were teaching young people to turn on, tune in, and drop out. In the midst of all of that, this strange thing happened. The Jesus Movement, it was called. Essentially, lots of hippies became Christians, or at least many of them experimented with Christianity. And their counterculture worldview kind of shaped the music that they made. And as I said, the poet laureate, the the leader of this movement, musically speaking, was a man by the name of Larry Norman. More than anything else, it was Norman who was responsible for essentially beginning the contemporary Christian music industry. I don't know if you know that or not. His most famous song and the title of a biography that I've been reading this week is Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? But it's his song, The Outlaw, that asks a more important question than that one. Listen to the question that this song asks. Listen to these lyrics. Some say he was an outlaw, that he roamed across the land with a band of unschooled ruffians and a few old fishermen. No one knew just where he came from or exactly what he'd done, but they said it must be something bad that kept him on the run. Some say he was a poet, that he'd stand upon the hill, that his voice could calm an angry crowd and make the waves stand still, that he spoke in many parables that few could understand, But the people sat for hours just to listen to this man. Some say a politician who spoke of being free. He was followed by the masses on the shores of Galilee. He spoke out against corruption and he bowed to no decree. And they feared his strength and power, so they nailed him to a tree. Some say he was a sorcerer, a man of mystery. He could walk upon the water, he could make a blind man see that he conjured wine at weddings and did tricks with fish and bread, that he talked of being born again and raised people from the dead. Some say he was the son of God, a man above all men, that he became a servant and to set, uh, he came to be a servant and to set us free from sin. That's who I believe he is because that's what I believe. And I think we should all get ready because it's time for us to leave. Larry Norman set the standard for quality Christian lyrics. 
But he raises an important question with that song. Who is this man? Is he, is he an outlaw? A politician? A, a poet? A, a sorcerer? Or the Son of God? John chapter 5. I want to read verses 25 to 30 this morning. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, as we think of this question. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's just pray one more time. Lord, I pray that you would give us what we need this morning. Uh, above all, we are a needy people and we need to know you. So I pray that you give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Generally, uh, when Jesus refers to himself in the third person, he most often does so by calling himself either the Son or the Son of Man. But among the four gospel writers, the most often repeated title for him by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the Son of God. Yet Jesus only refers to himself as the Son of God. Usually he just says the Son or the Son of Man, but he only refers to himself as the Son of God three times, at least three times in John's gospel, one of which is found right here in this passage today. And so when he does so, when he refers to himself as the Son of God, we need to understand the claims that he is making. But these few verses are unique because not only does Jesus refer to himself as the Son of God, but also as the Son of Man. And these two titles are they're kind of difficult for many people to understand. Why would God the Son refer to himself as the Son of Man. And then the next question often that pops into people's heads when they hear those phrases is, so which is it? Is he God or man? Is he the Son of God or the Son of Man? It's a valid question, but it's not the right question here. See, when Jesus uses these terms here, he's not really talking about what um, theologians will call the hypostatic union. That is this combination of the divine and the human natures of Christ in the, in the single person of Jesus. How, how Jesus can be both truly God and truly man at the same time. Here, Jesus is talking about his authority. And specifically, he's talking about resurrection and, and judgment. Two activities that we've already seen in the previous passage that belong solely, wholly, and only to God. So think about this for a moment. The key to Christianity is resurrection. The key to Christianity is resurrection. 
Paul will address this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the whole chapter really, but in the middle of it he says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ... We have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied, Paul says. The actual, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key to Christianity. The Apostle Peter will firmly ground our uh, new life in Christ. He will firmly ground that in Christ's resurrection when he writes in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, as he's introducing the letter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our salvation comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, All of them provide accounts at the ends of their books. They provide accounts on the events of the resurrection, the historical events that happened. Luke and John give us the most details of all four. And then Luke, when he writes his second book, Acts, he gives even more information surrounding the events immediately following the resurrection. And and this is the key here. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. If we lose the resurrection, we lose everything. If the resurrection never happened, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, some would argue that in this passage, in John chapter 5 here, Jesus is just repeating himself. We've been over these things before. He said this in the the previous paragraph. He's just restating this again and again, but really what he's doing is he's actually pulling back the curtain and showing us a little bit of the the big picture. He's giving us further clues to his identity and his authority, and he does so by speaking in terms of the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God is already here, and it has not yet been fulfilled. He says that the, that the resurrection is now and the resurrection is yet to come. And then in the middle of this, he, he throws in a little bit about the judgment of the Son of Man, which is, of course, connected with the resurrection. So look again at verses just 25 and 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in in Himself. 
Once again, Jesus uses this famous, truly, truly, I say to you, as we've seen, even earlier in this passage, this isn't the first time even in this um, discourse that he has said this. When he does, when he uses this phrase, he does so to emphasize what he's about to say. And when, when Jesus speaks, we better listen. And when he says in the King James, verily, verily, I say unto thee, when he says this, we really better sit up and take notice to what he's about to say. Because it just might have bearing on our eternity. And it certainly does right here. And so now that he has our attention, truly, truly, I say to you, he also makes this interesting statement. He says, an hour is coming and is now here. An hour is coming and is now here. This is, a, this is a strange way to tell time. Don't you think? This is a strange way to tell. Lunch is coming and is now here. It's a strange way to tell time. But of course, Jesus is speaking in, again, sorry to throw big words at you, but I'm not sorry. He's speaking in what theologians call eschatological terms. That means that he's, he's referencing the final hour, the end times. And he'll often speak in this way, because as he, as he will say in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. That day and that hour. But what is clear, and the reason that he uses this phrase, an hour is coming and is now here, is that the hour has begun. The judge has already come, and yet the final hour is still yet to come. This is what we call the already and the not yet of Jesus' ministry. Jesus Christ has come. He was standing there in front of these people, the Jews, his own people, the Jewish leadership, these Pharisees. He's saying these words. He's there. And in this kind of language, an hour is coming and is now here, is common in Old Testament scripture, the people of Israel, God's covenant people, were waiting for, as the Old Testament will often say, the day of the Lord. And just to clarify, in this kind of language, um, the Bible will sometimes use the day of the, of the Lord and the hour, meaning the hour that is now here, the hour that is coming and is now here. It kind of uses these things sort of interchangeably, day and hour. They essentially mean the same thing. So think of it like a wedding day or a birthday. So which is more important? The day you got married or the hour you got married? Or the day that you were born or the hour that you were born? Well, when you're going through it, the hour is more important, right? You better be there on time, man. The hour is important. But when you're looking back at it or looking forward to it, it's the day that is important. That's sort of the idea here. It's sort of like that. But the thing about the day of the Lord is, is that this phrase is used as both a, both a warning and a promise. See, the day of the Lord, the hour that has now come, according to the Old Testament, it would be both a, a time of judgment and a time of restoration. Judgment for God's enemies and a restoration for the faithful remnant, those who had, had trusted in God. And remember, these standing with Jesus on that day as he says these words, 
He is speaking to his enemies. He is speaking to God's enemies, Jews who are seeking all the more to kill him, verse 18 says. But he's also speaking to some others who are also standing there, his own disciples, who are also hearing these words. So listen to the promised judgment. I want to read a couple of passages from the Old Testament that talk about the day of the Lord, that talk about the hour that is coming and is now here that Jesus is referring to. The first one I want to read is Amos chapter 5, verses 18, 19, and 20. This is probably the first place this is used like this in the Old Testament. Amos 5 says this, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a, I love this imagery, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? That's judgment. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 to 11, it says this, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Judgment. The day of the Lord would be judgment. And finally, Jeremiah 46 verse 10 just simply says this. That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The day of the Lord would be a day of judgment. This is why why the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him, because an hour is coming and is now here. But for his friends... For the faithful remnant who have put their faith in Christ, all of those who have believed in his name, listen to these promises of the day of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 1, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. But again, listen to the promise of of Joel. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 says this, And it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. 
The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. When Jesus says these words here in John chapter 5, he's actually firing a warning shot over the bow of the boat of the Pharisees. The day, the hour is coming and is now here. Judgment or restoration. That's what you're facing, he's saying. He is God the Son. He's the one who is ushering in the great and mighty day of the Lord. But then he also says that it's still coming. It's not yet. The hour is is not yet. We still wait for the final resurrection, the final judgment. We know that. All we have to do is watch the news for five minutes, and we know that we're still waiting for judgment. All we have to do is try and stand up really quickly, and some of us understand that we're still waiting for restoration. We're waiting. Paul will take this idea of the day of the Lord, and he will apply it directly to Christ. So he writes to the church in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11, he says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ." filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This This is Paul's prayer. This ought to be our prayer for us as we as we wait for the day of Christ, for the hour that we're waiting that has not yet come. And so we live even today in the midst of this tension, the already and the not yet. And as we do, Paul tells us there in Philippians that we are to be pure and blameless. But Jesus is speaking here in John chapter 5 in in prophetic terms. He's talking in kind of Old Testament thought, the day of the Lord. And he's bringing it into the New Covenant times, New Testament times. In fact, he will soon establish this new covenant on the cross. And then later down in verse 28... Jesus will talk about the the raising of the dead on the last day, when that time comes. And even here, we might, even here in verse uh, 25 and 6, we might think that he's he's talking about the, the resurrection in the last day, except that he uses the phrase, is now here. So a time is coming and is now here, he says. He must be talking about, when he talks about the resurrection there, he must be talking about a current resurrection. The time is coming, but it is now here. Remember, Jesus, or John rather, in writing this gospel account, up to this point, he's not told us of any instance where Jesus has brought someone back from the dead. Um, He won't do so uh, until we get to the story of Lazarus in chapter 11. And so when he says that time has now come, 
He must be referring to something else. Look at this again. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. The time is now here, he says, when those who are dead will hear the voice of the Son and live. He must be talking about something other than those who are physically dead. Really, this has to be something no less than the giving of spiritual life. And I want to point out, I want to be really clear, that, that spiritual life and death is no, lef, no less real than physical life and death. In fact, the Bible teaches that it is far better to be physically dead and spiritually alive than to be spiritually dead. Being spiritually dead or alive is no less real than being physically dead or alive. It's real. Jesus is saying that the resurrection life for the physically dead at the end of time is already being manifest. It's already happening as life for us who have been spiritually dead. When you first heard the word of Christ, the gospel of your salvation, you were brought from death to life. And that's real. That's real. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 tells us this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show his, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When you were made alive together with Christ, it is because God spoke to you. You heard his word, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And he did so by the speaking of his word. Isaiah 55, verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. That's a promise. Listen to me, God says. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And when he spoke, when he spoke to you, he made you alive 
He gave life to your dry bones. Remember Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of dry bones? In the midst of that chapter, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the midst of that chapter, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. And how can he do this? How can the son exercise judgment and, and generate resurrection life by his own word? How can he do that? It's because of verse 26. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. Jesus has been given all authority to have life in himself, he says. He is self-existent as the Father is. He is not dependent on the Father, and he is not independent of the Father. He just is. He is, I am. Verse 27 even explains it a little bit more, and it says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man. Now, we've already seen that, as verse 22 says, for the Father judges no one, and He has given all judgment to the Son. We already saw that last week or the week before. But now Jesus goes another step, and He explains that He's been granted authority because He is the Son of Man. Now, as I mentioned, this is a favorite title that Jesus has for Himself. He calls Himself the Son of Man often. But what's the significance of these words, of this title? Why would Jesus be granted authority based on this fact that he is the Son of Man? Do you see that in verse 27? He says, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Well, to understand this, we, we really need to go to the source. Because Jesus is not saying simply that he is a Son of Mankind, like we are. He's using this in a, in a very specific way. It comes from a prophecy found in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel has a vision, and in it he writes this. He says, I saw the, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus, all throughout his ministry, in calling himself the Son of Man, he's claiming that these verses, Daniel 7, 13, and 14, he's claiming that these are about him. He's saying that he has been given the authority by the ancient of days. That's God. We sang about that in one of the hymns that we just sang. The ancient of days is God. He's claiming that he has been given the authority by God to execute judgment 
Because to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. He is claiming here before these Jews who are seeking all the more to kill him. He is claiming that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, he says on this passage, he says, Jesus is the apocalyptic son of man who receives from the ancient of days the prerogatives of deity, a kingdom that entails total dominion. At the same time, he belongs to humanity and has walked where humans walk. When Daniel describes this son of man, that's what he says. I saw one as a son of man. He looked like a human. He looked like a a man. And yet the ancient of days gave him all authority and power and dominion that all nations and peoples and languages would worship him. If Jesus is the son of man that Daniel was talking about, then he has been given the authority to execute judgment. But even more than that, he's been given all authority, according to Daniel. The Son of Man will be, as as Jesus will say in John 3.14, he will be lifted up. This will come through the crucifixion. The Son of Man will provide food that leads to eternal life, he will say in in John 6.27. And then he will act with this end-time authority by sitting in judgment, he says here in John 5.27. But even more telling in all of this, that Jesus is the Son of Man, that He has all this authority, even more telling is the statement that He makes that leads really directly to His crucifixion. Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Picture the trial that Jesus is in. He's bound. He's standing before the high priests. Matthew 26 says this, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Peter was following them at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, picture this scene of Jesus bound before the high priest. He says, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and he said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. It is Jesus' unique status as the Son of Man 
that makes him qualified to judge. But right along with that, Jesus' authority to judge, it becomes even more understandable when, when we understand the man part of the Son of Man. Jesus' perfect obedience makes him the only qualified judge. Not only is, is he the Son of Man, not only is he the Son of God, God the Son, not only is he I am, but Romans 5 verses 18 and 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And this perfect judgment brings us to the future resurrection that so many of us long for and so many others should fear. Look at verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Don't marvel at this, Jesus says. We could take that in a couple of ways, and I think maybe he means both ways. Don't marvel at this. You ain't seen nothing yet. Don't marvel at this. I've been telling you all along. Why are you surprised? The scriptures tell you who I will be. Why are you surprised when I show up here and start talking to you? Don't marvel at this. See, the voice of the Son the voice that is powerful enough to regenerate your dead heart right now will be powerful enough to call forth dead men. Just like he did Lazarus when he said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come forth. Be powerful enough to do it in the end as well. Daniel prophesied as much, again in Daniel chapter 12, first couple of verses of that chapter says this, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people. There shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a, a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be written, found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Truly, truly, I say to you, these verses are a sobering and powerful promise of God. This is a promise of God. And we, we had been warned, as had the Jews, of what fate evildoers faced when the great judge of the, of the quick and the dead returns. The Old Testament <clears throat> closes with Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 begins like this. It's just a few verses, but the beginning of the chapter says this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will, never, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, for you who fear The name of Jesus, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go about leaping like calves from the stall. 
You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The Son of Man, the Son of God, is a righteous judge who will come to restore, has come to restore. And let me just close with verse 30, which says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus saying, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. He judges and restores, resurrects, saves for the glory of God. He does what God wishes, and he does so to save us because God has loved us. Let's pray. Father, it is humbling when we think that the Son of God, our Jesus that we love and sing about, that we worship and proclaim, is also the Son of Man who has been given all dominion and authority that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord because you have granted to him to be the Son of Man. Lord, as we read these verses and think of the judgment even as we read Revelation 19 earlier. Lord, not planned, but, but in your sovereignty, you had us read of the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, we long for that day. We look forward to the day when all death and sin, the effects of sin in the world, sickness and disease, and war, Lord, when all of it is put away, when evil is destroyed and we walk on it like ashes under our feet, as Malachi says. We long for your justice. And Lord, until then, I pray that we would be obedient so that we would be found pure and blameless in the day of Christ, making disciples, living holy lives proclaiming Jesus' death until he returns. Transform our hearts and our minds, Lord, that we may worship the Son of Man. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For I received from the Lord